The Seahawks have loaded up on their defensive line during free agency, but it's never too early to bring in another quality three-tech or even a nose tackle. Rob Rang and I are going to be breaking down the top defensive tackle prospects for the 2022 NFL Draft that could stand out as potential targets for the Seahawks on our latest installment of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for our Tuesday episode, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. A friendly reminder to all of our listeners, we've got a contest running this week on our Twitter account, Locked underscore Seahawks. You can have a chance to win a Quandre Diggs number six uniform, either a navy or white one. We can't get Wolf Gray or Action Green, unfortunately, customized with Diggs number on it, but you can get the other two colors. We've got over 500 entrants so far. To throw your name into the hat, all you got to do is retweet the tweet that we've got pinned to the top of our page. And make sure you're following our account again. That's locked underscore Seahawks and comment with who you think the Seahawks will pick first in the 2022 NFL draft. It's that easy. So make sure to check that out on our Twitter account. We're going to continue our pre-draft coverage today, looking at defensive tackles that may intrigue the Seahawks heading into this month's draft. And we're going to have our next step in our quarterback in transition series We're going to head into the new century, looking back at when Matt Hasselbeck came to Seattle and reunited with coach Mike Holmgren. As always, thanks for jumping on and joining us. Let's get to it here on this jam-packed episode. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks, John Schneider, prior to today, had never picked up a fifth-year option for any of his previous five first-round picks. That changed today, and ironically, it was for a player that he didn't draft, Noah Fant, the Seahawks deciding to pick up the tight end's fifth-year option a few weeks after he was officially traded to the Seahawks from the Broncos, part of the Russell Wilson trade. Rob, this was really the only decision that the Seahawks could have made here, especially when you look at the cost, $6.85 million fully guaranteed, but that's under $7 million in 2023. It gives you a second season to continue evaluating Noah Fant, another year to be able to negotiate with him and his agent if you do want to bring him back on a long-term contract. It extends that audition window, and currently at that price tag, he would be the 18th highest paid tight end based on annual salary. And so this seems like a no-brainer, especially for a player that was maybe the cornerstone of those three veterans that they brought in as part of that trade. Yeah, very well said. I mean, that's the thing. Is I think that, that Noah Fant is the most physically gifted of the three veteran players that Seattle um, was able to get in the Russell Wilson trade. I think that Noah Fant is a, is a potential pro bowler. I think that he might be able to ascend to that kind of pro bowl status this upcoming season, Corbin. I really think that he is on the precipice of a possible career year. And so, yeah, it's just good financial business to for the Seahawks to be be, uh, you know, extending it using that fifth year rookie option as a former first round pick that Noah Fant is. Uh, as you said, it's kind of a no brainer kind of a move. It's one that I've been expecting Seattle to be to have made, uh, you know, already 
Um, and, and But at the same time, I think that it also makes a lot of sense for uh, Seattle to do this before the draft because there has been some talk out there that the Seattle might be looking to select a tight end. I think that this kind of just shows that Seattle is committed to Noah Fant is, is possibly being that superstar down the scene that they've been looking for for a long time now. And again, let, let me just kind of go back for a moment about how excited I am about the fact that Seattle does have no offense on their roster. I mean, there's been very few tight ends that Seattle has ever had on their roster who have the combination of size, athletic ability, soft hands that Noah, Noah Fant offers. You know, say what you will about Jimmy Graham. He had that type of ability. Gerald Everett has that type of athletic ability, just didn't have the consistency. Wasn't the blocker in no in uh in, in Jimmy Graham's case. Noah Fant is also not a, a real physical point of the attack blocker. And that's what we saw. Or one of the reasons why I think that the Seattle decided to uh to bring back Will Disley um at the pay, at the price that they paid for him. But Noah Fant is a different kind of guy, just in terms of his straight line speed, his size, uh, and his soft hands, reliable hands. And obviously the fact that he does have some built-in rapport with Drew Locke. So again, to me, this felt like a, a slam dunk type of move by the Seahawks. Tip of the cap to them for acknowledging the fact that uh, that this is a guy who perhaps is about ready to explode. To me, I think it's really similar to the fact that when, when Seattle re-signed Tyler Lockett a few years back, and there were a lot of people out there, Corbin, that that when, when Seattle signed Tyler Lockett to that extension, people are like, why are you re-signing Tyler Lockett now? Well, it's because the Seahawks anticipated that he was going to become one of the real focal points of their offense and be able to sign him when he's a little bit cheaper. Uh, to me, that's exactly what they're doing here with Noah Fan. I really think that this is a move that the Seahawks and Seahawks fans are going to be really excited about moving forward, not just for the next year or two, but moving forward in the long term as well. I saw some fans on social media today that were, and I even saw a few people that are in media, a few football writers that were questioning this move because he's never played it down for you. Why would you invest the kind of money when you haven't seen him in your own uniform yet? Well, I think that you can refute that statement to an extent just by the fact that this kid is 24 years old. I mean, he's still a very young tight end and you're mentioning, you know, the idea that he might be able to have a breakout year because he has worked with Drew Locke. If Drew Locke is your quarterback, that is going to be the person that he has the most faith in, most faith in right away throwing the football to because they have worked together for the last three years. Now, maybe eventually his chemistry is going to catch up with Lockett and DK Metcalf and D. Eskridge. That's what you're hoping if he's the guy. But Noah Fant is going to be a built-in weapon that he already has that chemistry with. So if he goes out and has a career year, he's had 670 and 673 receiving yards the last two years. Let's say he goes out and gets 750, 800 receiving yards and sets a new career high. Maybe he gets six or seven touchdowns. If they didn't pick up that fifth-year option with him only being 25 years old, you can guarantee there are going to be teams out there throwing way more money than $6.85 million at him annually in free agency. They wouldn't be able to bring him back. But now this gives you that extra buffer year where he is going to be under contract, fully guaranteed $6.85 million. Again, 18th highest paid tight end right now, according to that salary price. That is a great value. And if he doesn't have a very good year, that fifth-year option, it's still under $7 million, and he's still going to be a young player. Maybe his second season turns out a lot better. Again, 
to me, there's no downside in doing this. If it was a $10, $11 million salary, then I could maybe understand why the Seahawks would be a bit more skeptical about it. But then again, I don't know why you would ask for him to be included in this trade if you didn't envision him being part of your long-term plans. A player like Shelby Harris, maybe it's a little different because he's an older player, different position, but Noah Fant is a former first-round pick that isn't even 25 years old yet. And so I think you look at the price point, you look at the skill set in this offense. We saw, we saw what Gerald Everett could do in this offense. It was just inconsistent. But you put a player like Noah Fant, who's arguably a better athlete from the overall athletic profile than what Gerald Everett is, and I think he has shown signs he can be a blocker based on the film I've watched. It's, again, very inconsistent. But you put him in this scheme where Shane Waldron knows how to use tight ends and make him that move tight end in your 12 personnel, this has a chance to be a home run pickup for them if the quarterback play is able to get the football to him. That's going to be the big key. But, I, again, I just think if they would have decided not to do this, it wouldn't have made any sense because of his age and his upside. You are giving yourself an extra year at a very affordable rate. You absolutely have to take it. This is not like, you know, Rashad Penny, if they would have picked up his fifth-year option last year with all the injuries that he's had, it wouldn't have made any sense. But Fant has shown in his three years plenty of promise. He's been productive amid not so ideal circumstances. So this should have been an easy decision for Josh Snyder. And I think that's why they're making it a couple of weeks, even before the draft gets here. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that it was an easy decision for, for the Seahawks. I mean, obviously, um, as you mentioned, there have been some who are a little bit critical of this and, and maybe believe that the Seahawks are operating a little bit on faith with Noah Fant because obviously he is not yet suited up for them. Um, but at the same time, you just kind of watch the tape and just see what an unbelievable talent this guy is. And, and as you mentioned, let, let's just take the downside for a moment. Rather than being positive, let's assume – just for a moment, that Noah Fant does not live up to expectations. Still, as you mentioned, 18th rated or 18th highest contract for a tight end. And we know the salary cap is going to jump this upcoming season. We know the contracts being sent to uh, young players is going to jump this next season. Next year's draft class happens to be very loaded at the tight end position. But why would you invest a first round pick? like Seattle would have to do if they want a talent like Noah Fant, why would you do that when you just draft or just traded for a player who already has that type of uh, athletic ability and size? Uh, to me, th this was exactly the type of move that Seattle needed to do to show Noah Fant that they were committed to him because let's face it, Denver Broncos selected him in the first round and then essentially kind of forgot about him. They just did not use him as much as I anticipate that Seattle will. And I think that you, it was really astute convers, uh, uh, observation that you made earlier and just kind of mentioning the way that Shane Waldron likes to use the tight ends in their offense. How many times did we talk about it over the last couple of years where Russell Wilson had open tight ends and did not take full advantage of them? Go back and look at Drew Locke's tape. Drew Locke used his tight end back in the day at Missouri. He absolutely was explosive um, with the way that he used tight end. He was one of the more productive players. Um, Albert's a 
Quan, I always butcher his name. You can look it up yourself. But uh, you know, it, a, a guy that was incredibly productive, who actually has a very similar athletic profile as what Noah Fant has. So again, I, I think that this was a, a savvy move from a financial standpoint. I think it's an even savvier move from a scouting standpoint. Noah Fant is a really good football player. I think he's going to wind up putting up some of the best numbers we've ever seen in Seattle at the tight end position. That's what the Seahawks are hoping for. We'll have to see how it pans out. Still questions at the quarterback position. A lot of things that we don't know yet going into this draft that are going to be answered. And at that point, then we'll have a little better idea maybe what to expect from Noah Fan. But the Seahawks have high expectations. And now they've got two years to be able to evaluate him before they have to commit to a long-term deal. And fully guaranteed salary, that's a big raise in 2023 for Noah Fant. So really both parties win in this instance when we come back here in a few moments we're going to continue our quarterback in transition series the Seahawks moving away from Russell Wilson it's not the first time they have moved away from a talented starting quarterback we're going to go back to the start of the century when Matt Hasselbeck arrived in Seattle to reunite with Mike Holmgren and the Seahawks BetOnline.net is your number one source for all your betting stats and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, league reviews, and news, including this year's basketball playoffs and the start of the Major League Baseball season. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports and wagering informational needs, whether it's live betting, to the playoffs, esports, and more. Head to their website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. BetOnline, where the game starts. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, my co-host, Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. we got a big announcement here coming up on Thursday, April 28th. Make sure to tune in to the Locked On NFL Draft's live coverage of the 2022 NFL Draft with all three days of real-time analysis from our extensive lineup of experts and insiders. And for those of you dying to know who your team will take, make sure to catch on Odyssey the Locked On NFL's Mock Draft Special hosted by Brian Peacock and former scout Matt Williamson of the Peacock and Williamson NFL Show all week leading up to the first pick. You can find those in the Locked On NFL Draft YouTube page as well as all major podcast platforms. Continuing our QB in Transition series, Russell Wilson now heading to Denver. Not the first major quarterback change the Seahawks have had in their history. Won't be the last one either. Up to this point, we talked about Jim Zorn going to Dave Craig and then all of the abysmal quarterbacks that followed Dave Craig after he left following the 1991 season. And then the last episode, I broke down Warren Moon and John Kitna, which ended up really being the golden years of the 90s. That tells you what you need to know about the quarterback situation for the Seahawks in the 1990s. Luckily, we get a reprieve from what was the roughest decade in franchise history, at least at the quarterback position. They had one playoff appearance. Mike Holmgren got it out of him in 1999. Now it's time for the Matt Hasselbeck era in 2000. Before we get to the positives, though, we always like to make sure we paint the full picture. And I'll tell you what, the first couple years after the Seahawks traded with the Packers to get Matt Hasselbeck, who Mike Holmgren helped draft originally when he was with the Packers, uh, it was a pretty bumpy ride. And it looked a few times like that trade was not going to pan out for them. 
It, it looked like Trent Dilfer w- was going to be the face of the franchise, not Matt Hasselback. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, revisionist history w- would suggest that Matt Hasselback walked into Seattle and was a superstar from the jump. And he certainly became a superstar, obviously led Seattle to their, their very first Super Bowl appearance and, and wound up becoming an incredibly productive player for the Seahawks. But at the same time, it was a rough transition, as you mentioned. I mean, I, I remember going to some of those early games. And just to add to the complexity of it, those some of those early games were held at the University of Washington as they demolished the Kingdome and, and wound up building the, the new stadium. Uh, and it just made it that much more difficult. But still, it's a testament to the fact that Matt Hasselbeck was very resilient. Uh, Mike Holmgren was willing to challenge his young quarterback and go with the quarterback in Trent Dilfer, who obviously had had great success in the NFL, former first-round selection himself, won a Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens. And and so that's where I think the Seahawks fans have got to kind of buckle up a little bit. Let's just imagine a scenario in which Seattle drafts a young quarterback or they go with Drew Locke. Either way, the expectation that he, whoever that quarterback might be, is going to come in and just light the world on fire just is not very realistic. We talked about this before, Corbin. It's just, it's very, very difficult during the same regime, it's very rare that you see a head coach and a general manager be able to find two franchise quarterbacks. It just doesn't happen very often. So I think that when you look back at the Matt Hasselbeck era, to me, one of the things you have to kind of look at is how the Seahawks built talent around them, having future Hall of Famers like Walter Jones and Steve Hutchinson along the offensive line, possibly a future Hall of Famer with Sean Alexander after Ricky Waters, another very, very good running back. Those are the type of things you have to be able to build around the quarterback to be able to give him that kind of confidence. And once that Matt Hasselbeck had that type of confidence, then obviously the rest of the history kind of writes itself. And I remember last year, Matt Hasselbeck was inducted into the ring of honor and the media had a chance to talk to him about it. And he was reflecting, you know, early in his career, he had that mindset that he was just going to, he was just going to come in and things were going to come naturally to him and he was going to win games and he was going to excel in that starting job. And I don't know that he necessarily took well at first to the really hard coaching that he was going to get from Mike Holmgren. And the first few starts they had were dreadful, really struggled to complete passes, was throwing picks. And so Holmgren got fed up being the quarterback coach that he is and went back to the trusty veteran Trent Dilfer. And I'll always wonder if Dilfer would not have gotten hurt in the 2001 season, if we're having a much different discussion right now, because Dilfer was playing pretty well and then he injured his Achilles and was out for the rest of the season. But that is when Matt Hasselbeck coming back in the lineup, he's been benched two different times. That was the wake up call for him. And you could see that light switch coming on by the end of the 2002 season. He was playing some of his best football, had a really strong finish. 2003 leads the Seahawks to the playoffs and he's a pro bowler for the first time. They made the playoffs five consecutive seasons starting in 2003. So that was the most extended run of success that this franchise had had. You just saw a quarterback that played with much more poise, much more confidence, a good type of confidence that he was prepared to go out there and succeed. And sometimes his confidence blew up in his face. We remember that playoff game against the Packers in 2003 when the mic picked up, we want the ball and we're going to score. But nonetheless, He was playing with a good type of confidence on the field, a little bit of swagger, and his teammates fed off of that. 
And as you mentioned, the Seahawks did a really good job of building around him. I'll always wonder what that offensive line might have looked like if Chris McIntosh wouldn't have had a career-ending injury because it was already an incredible line with Walter Jones, Steve Hutchinson, Robbie Tobeck, Chris Gray. I mean, this line was one of the best we've ever seen, and they protected Matt Hasselbeck. They opened up running lanes for Ricky Waters as well as Sean Alexander when he went on his MVP tear in 2005. So Hasselbeck had a fantastic run with the Seahawks, led him to 69 wins, five playoff appearances, uh, Super Bowl appearance in 2005, three Pro Bowls. And it's just, you know, to me, the lesson to take from this, and, and I think it's a good lesson going into this transition, as you just mentioned with quarterbacks not necessarily being able to hit the ground running and light the world on fire when the season starts in 2022, Patience is something that is forgotten in a lot of circles in the NFL. It's what have you done for me lately? You need to go out and you need to produce. But when you're looking at young quarterbacks, even somebody like Drew Locke, that's been the last three years in the league, has been in and out of the lineup and has had his struggles. Sometimes it just takes a little bit more time for that player to really mature and reach their peak on the field. That's what happened with Matt Hasselbeck. If they would have given up on him completely, the Seahawks don't get to their first Super Bowl. Maybe Trent Dilfer's in the lineup and they're just a middling team in the NFC West, or they end up drafting another quarterback. We don't know how that plays out, but the willingness to stick with by or stick with him, stick by Matt Hasselbeck and let him to go through those lumps, learn on the practice field, ended up paying dividends for the Seahawks. And a lot of times we don't see teams willing to do that now in today's NFL. And if a quarterback doesn't get it done the first couple of years, it's on to the next guy. And I don't know that that's the right approach. No, I, I 100% agree with you. I, I I think that it's the wrong approach. I think that's exactly why Seattle made the move for, for Drew Locke um, and, and demanded that he be part of the deal when when Russell Wilson you know, basically demanded that he was going to be leaving Seattle. Uh, I think that there, there are a lot of similarities. When you look at what Drew Locke was able to do during his fairly extensive starting experience, um, you know, this is a guy who who started 24 games uh, with, with the Denver Broncos, excuse me, played in 24 games with the Denver Broncos. He comes to Seattle, Corbin, with a, a career touchdown to interception ratio of 25 to 20, which doesn't sound like it's lighting the world on fire because let's be clear, it's not. But at the same time, you look at Matt Hasselbeck's very first year in Seattle. He threw seven touchdowns and eight interceptions. So just compare those two numbers. So, again, you you mentioned the fact that you have to have a little bit of faith. You have to have a little bit of patience. And I think that there's not very many head coaches in the NFL out there who do have that because the time is clicking on their personal watch. But when you have a guy like Pete Carroll, who's had the success that he's had, obviously in Seattle, but previously in making that transition from quarterback to quarterback to quarterback at the college game, it is a little bit more natural. I think that Seattle is actually in a much better position to be able to make that transition from Russell Wilson to whoever is the next quarterback than most other teams are, and certainly much more so than the national media thinks. Well, they'll be hoping they can replicate what happened with Matt Hasselbeck coming from another organization. Obviously, you don't have Pete Carroll coming over from the Denver Broncos to join the Seattle Seahawks. It's not the same dynamic, but... This Seahawks organization really liked Drew Locke coming out of Missouri going into the pre-draft process. So this is a kid they have followed closely for a long time. So they're hoping 
that they can have some success with him under center. Of course, there's always a chance they could draft a quarterback later this month too. And then you've got the rookie competing against Drew Locke. That's what Pete Carroll would love. Again, always compete regardless of position and go see who wins that job when we get to training camp in August. Fast forwarding to this draft, we're going to be continuing our 2022 draft profiles. Yesterday, we took a look at linebackers. Today, we're going to stay on defense. The guys in front of them at the defensive tackle position, checking out our top five prospects and maybe a few mid-rounders who could be worth a flyer for the Seahawks as well. This episode is brought your way by Rock Auto. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning and wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer, choosing the only brand their warehouse happens to carry? You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. Why choose to spend 30, 50, or even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or car dealership? Rock Auto is a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years. They've got reliably low prices for every customer, and they've got everything you could possibly need, whether it's brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, or even new carpet. Go explore their easy-to-use website today to find the solution to your auto parts needs. RockAuto.com. Check them out right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck right locked on in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know we sent you amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Tuesday edition. I'm Corbin Smith, joined by my co-host, Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Continuing our 2022 NFL draft coverage, we've been going position by position. Yesterday, we took a look at the linebackers. We're going to move back up to the trenches today. Defensive tackle. Now, Rob, this is not a position that I think is a major short-term need for the Seahawks. They've still got Puna Ford. They re-signed Al Woods and Brian Monet. Shelby Harris and Quentin Jefferson can play nose tackle and three-tech positions as well as the base defensive end spots. They have a lot of big body guys that are going to be able to play snaps in the interior defensive line for them. At the same time, a number of those players are on one or two year contracts. Puna Ford's going to be a free agent next March. So looking a year ahead and trying to bring in a defensive tackle may make more sense than what some fans realize. And this is a group that is pretty top heavy You've got some really good talents that could be available in the first couple of rounds. And then there's a drop-off with some decent value guys on day three. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why Seattle was as aggressive as they were. You you mentioned the fact that Shelby Harris was part of that trade involving Russell Wilson and then bringing back Quentin Jefferson. Um, Just think about what uh, what Quentin Jefferson has done throughout his career. And most of it has been in in teams that are operating at basically a 4-3 scheme. But he does have some experience in a 3-4 alignment, as does Shelby Harris. The majority of his time in Denver, of course, is in 3-4 alignment. I think that he is going to kind of serve as that coach on the field um and then obviously bringing back the big guys like al woods and uh you know and brian monet i think was absolutely critical now if we're going to look at this draft class corbin i would agree with you i think that it is very top heavy i often defensive tackle 
even consider in the first round would be Jordan Davis, at least at that number nine overall selection, because we know that Pete Carroll and John Schneider love the idea of the freakish talents. And oh my goodness, anybody who watched the combine, how could you not acknowledge the just incredible athleticism and size package that is Jordan Davis? But if you were to ask me who are my favorite defensive linemen in this draft class, I, I would not mention Jordan Davis. I would mention his former teammate, teammate excuse me, Devontae Wyatt, uh, from Georgia, as well as Perion Winfrey from Oklahoma. I just don't know that either one of those two guys, Corbin, actually fit in quite as well. And again, this 3-4 alignment, which let's let's break that down a little bit here for a moment. What you're typically expecting out of 3-4 defensive linemen is you want them to be two gappers. You want them to be very, very strong at the point of attack, be able to hold up against two different blockers and allow the linebackers behind them to be able to run and wreak havoc. This is not going to be the penetrators. That's not typically what you're looking for for 3-4 defensive linemen. Now, Seattle does have some guys who have shown that ability to get skinny, split some gaps, and be able to make tackles behind the law behind the line of scrimmage or create some pressure on the quarterback. I think the CL already has guys like that. As you mentioned, Puna Ford is going to be a pending free agent. You don't think that he wants to, you know, create some splashy plays. I think the CL already has those types of guys. Defensive tackle, I do not believe is going to be a big area of focus for this club early, but I do think that they might be willing to look at some of the players in the middle or later rounds that might be able to just kind of fortify the back end of their roster. Yeah, I would be surprised if Jordan Davis is a player that's high on their big board, even though they love athletic freaks. Not a guy that had great pass rushing production at Georgia. You watch on film, the thing that is going to tantalize teams and might lead to him being a top 10, top 12 pick not just the fact that he had that incredible display of athleticism at his size at the combine, but there are splash plays that you see where you're like, if you can bottle that up and you can even make it that he plays like that 50% of the time, he is going to be borderline unblockable. And we've seen what interior defensive linemen that can rush the passer can do. They can completely obliterate offensive game plans. And so from that standpoint, if the right coach gets a hold of him with the physical tools that he has, the talent that he has, Jordan Davis can be more than just a run-stuffing defensive tackle. He can be an all-around game wrecker. But there's a lot of boomer bust potential in, in that selection to me. And so if I'm the Seahawks, there are other positions to me that are bigger needs, and you've got some really good players you can go after in this class. And you mentioned the other two players there, Wyatt and Winfrey, I think if they were running more of a 4-3 defense, that those two would be outstanding fits, especially Winfrey. But he is not a two-gapper. That is not his style at all. You watch the Oklahoma tape. That is, that's not how he plays. He's a penetrate gaps, really quick first step. If you're asking him to have to stack blockers and be a two-gapper, that is just not his style. I don't think that those are the kind of guys they're going to be looking for to play those positions if they're truly going to be playing more of a 3-4 style. They were playing more 4-3 where there's one gappers and they want guys they can really make splashy, penetrating plays. Then, yeah, those guys would be certainly under consideration. Probably early second round with 40 and 41 if they are available. Looking at the type of players they're going to want, though, Rob, opening our list back here, I have to look at the last guy on this list, and he was one of the standouts of the Senior Bowl and he played for a team at Connecticut that was terrible the last couple of years. But anytime you watch their film, big Travis Jones is one player you're like, he just doesn't look like he belongs with this team. 
because the rest of Connecticut's team was not good. But Travis Jones, his brute strength, his surprising athleticism, he will just bully you into submission. And to me, he is a guy that you can put at three tech in a four, three defense. You can play him at that four eye technique in a three, four. He can two gap. He can play nose. I don't know that he's a guy that's going to wreak a lot of havoc as a pass rusher necessarily, but as far as scheme versatility on that list, he might be your number one go-to guy that can play a number of spots in both three, four and four, three. And he's just nasty. And he's just a physically imposing guy, extremely powerful. He, he absolutely, you know, evaluating him in person at the senior bowl, Corbin, and he, he just reminded me so much of Al Woods. I mean, yeah. I, I just thought that he would make a play, fall down at the line of scrimmage and kind of do his little, you know, the, the celebration that Al Woods did so many times for, uh, for the Seahawks this past season. Um, that's the type of guy that, that he is. And, and so, I agree with you. To me, he makes a lot of sense in terms of how he fits in with Seattle. But the fact that you have Woods and the, that you have Monet, I just don't think that it's necessarily a huge position of concern as we discussed. But there is no question. Jordan Davis, Travis Jones are the two guys on that list who I think, at least in my opinion, who fit in best with what Seattle is looking to do. And I don't want to skip to Marvin Leal. I mean, from Texas A&M, this is a good football player. He's just – he is more athletic and uh, – and, um, he's really that gap penetrator. He's not, he, he really is exactly. I mean, he is a guy that, you know, is just kind of loose and athletic. He's not necessarily powerful at the point of attack. So again, I just question his fit in a traditional three, four scheme. Now there's one guy that's not on that list that I do expect to be selected somewhere in the top 75, hundred uh, selections or so that I think also might make a little bit of sense for Seattle. Again, then talking about a player who has have a great deal of position um, and schematic versatility, and that would be another one of those great Alabama defensive linemen, Federia Mathis. And he checks a lot of boxes because you look at what he did this past season, Corbin, I mean, he was a sack monster. Now, I would argue that a great deal of that is the fact that he was surrounded by so much talent. But at the same time, you're talking about a guy who has the size, has the length, has the strength to be able to play at the line of scrimmage and hold up in the running game, but also be able to give you something in the pass rush department as well. Mathis from Alabama would be the one other player that I would kind of throw on that list that might be a guy that Seattle would be willing to consider, perhaps with that third round selection. Yeah, and as I mentioned, you know, Mathis is a player that would certainly make sense maybe in the third round. If he falls into the fourth, absolutely Seattle should be taking a look maybe at trying to add him because there is some athleticism there, but the ability to have some scheme versatility. I just feel like this class, though, once you get past Mathis, there's a gaping hole in terms of talent. There's a really wide gap. And there are some guys that on day three, like Haskell Garrett from Ohio State. I don't think he has near the ceiling that some of these other players that we mentioned do, but he played a lot of snaps for the Buckeyes. We know that's one of the best programs in college football year in, year out. And I think that he's a guy that is a high floor, low ceiling prospect. And what I mean by that, he can come in and he can play snaps for you right away with the experience he has. And I think he's a good fit for a 3-4. He can two-gap. He's not going to be a guy that's going to be overly disruptive. Penetrating gaps did not test very well, so he's not going to be picked super early. But middle of day three with his physicality, a little bit of scheme versatility to him, his experience, his toughness, his size, 
that is a player that I can see Seattle. That is where I see them picking a defensive tackle, not in the first three rounds, because they just have so many other needs, and they did a really good job addressing that defensive line in free agency and through trades. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Um, if you're not going to invest an early selection in a guy like a Jordan Davis or perhaps, uh, again, a Fedarian Mathis, um, a Travis Jones, as we talked about before, Let, let's just imagine a scenario in which Seattle is looking to add another big body on day three. To me, there's a couple of guys that make some sense. John Ridgway from Arkansas. Um, another one that makes sense is DJ Davidson from Arizona State. Another just big body, 6'3", 340. 30 pound kind of a nose guard type. Those are the types you're talking about, but I think you're talking about guys in the, the fifth, sixth, seventh rounds. Um, this is not a draft class core, at least in my opinion, that I, I think is really, really gifted in terms of the depth at that position. So again, if Seattle decides to go with one of these players, I think you're most likely, if you want immediate impact, you're most likely going to have to invest in early selection all the more reason why I think it's much more likely that Seattle is going to be focusing on their other areas of concern, offensive tackle, center, cornerback, quarterback, and certainly edge rusher being a bigger priorities, considering just the talent that's available and the talent that's already on your roster. There's just not a lot of depth in this particular class. We've seen some pretty good defensive tackle groups in the last five years. This one just doesn't stack up, though it's pretty top-heavy. you got some really talented players that we threw in our top five there that could make sense as first and second round picks. After that, you get a pretty wide gap in terms of talent. There are still some guys that could provide some value, though, on day three. As always, thanks for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. Make sure to follow Rob at Rob Rang and check out the Locked on Seahawks podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, streaming five days a week on YouTube. Coming up on our Wednesday episode, continuing our draft coverage. Going to go back to the secondary. The Seahawks are loaded at safety, but you can't tell me that Pete Carroll and John Schneider are not looking at some potential depth options. We'll be taking a look at some of the top safeties that could be potential targets for the Seahawks heading into the 2022 NFL Draft. Plus, I know fans aren't going to enjoy this overly much, but we are going to explore what a few of our other experts on the Locked On Podcast Network might be willing to give up in a trade for DK Metcalf or Tyler Lockett. It's pre-draft season. We've seen craziness this offseason. So I'm looking forward to reading through some of those proposals on our Wednesday show. Thanks for listening in. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks.